This is Raising a Sane and Successful Teen, Section 1, Living and Growing Together, Chapter 1, My Story. I was born in the 1950s in a part of middle America where adults drank hard liquor, joined the local swim club, and beat their kids. I had two parents who were wonderful in many ways and very disturbed in others. They were Italian immigrants' children, and they lived in a neighborhood in New York which was dominated by the mafia. They had relatives, close ones, who were engaged in illegal activities. My grandfather on my mother's side was a bookmaker. My great uncles on my father's side were first counterfeiters, then loan sharks, and then longshoremen. There would often be a box of clothes stolen from some freighter in the harbor sitting in one of my grandmother's living rooms. Relatives were welcome to come and take what they needed from the box, t-shirts, dresses, dress pants. It didn't seem to bother most of my family that we were wearing stolen goods. In our little tribe, we were taught to overlook the workings of distant relations who were loving family members to us children, but who were also common thieves. My parents wanted to get away from all this, and they succeeded. Luckily, my father, who had been a handball champ in the old neighborhood, caught the attention of one of the most senior officers on his Navy base in San Diego during the Second World War. The officer had a severe drinking problem. He used to work off his unholy hangovers with punishing games of tennis every morning at dawn. He heard about my father's handball playing and ordered him trained in tennis. Dressed in tennis whites and probably a bit nervous, my father, an Italian-American kid from the streets of Brooklyn, Brooklyn, spent a good part of the war helping his admiral work out his guilt over his drinking. My father learned tennis well. He learned a lot of other things, too. He learned how to be in the presence of money and to converse with people who had it. He learned some of the secrets of making it financially in this world. When he left the Navy, he was ready to enter a new kind of life. At a party after the war was over, my father met my mother. Working as a secretary in a publishing house, my mother had ideas of creating a new life as well. The two young people shared the hope of leaving the tugs of the old world behind. So they left the city and bought a house in a very small, very historic town in northern New Jersey. Loaded their two, then three, then four, then five children into their maroon mercury and went to what they called the woods of New Jersey to live. It was a fine place to be a kid. It was full of magical hiding places for us kids to be in our own little world. The forest and the river and many paths down the dirt road were all there for us kids to explore. It was good to be climbing trees in the spring and floating in homemade boats on the river in the summer. In the fall, we made leaf piles and jumped in them for hours. In the winter, we went ice skating over the frozen river and built forts out of heaps of snow. But it was isolated, and I think for many years my parents were very lonely. There wasn't much activity apart from visiting neighbors on our little horseshoe-shaped road. My mother, a young woman in her 20s, spent days stranded in the house without a car, worried about money, lost in forgotten dreams, and overwhelmed by babies. Her parenting methods were the extreme techniques of the harried housewife of her time. She hit us, hit us often from the time we were very young. And when my father came home at night, he would often drink heavily and they would fight about money, about work, about their frustrations and disappointments. My father paid special attention to me, his oldest, and often turned, me, turned to me for companionship. But even those moments, going somewhere with him or talking as we did some chore together, were rare. Like the rest of the kids I knew, our parents were often people to stay clear of. The less we invaded the struggles of their lives, the better for all of us. 
Yeah, my parents had strong, similar philosophies about their obligations to their families. Many weekends of my childhood, I remember journeying to relatives' homes in New York where my different grandparents lived. We would often spend weekends with some part of our bold, colorful, and raucous family, separated, as children often were then, from the things of adulthood, and immersed in festivities and music and food. In Brooklyn, we slept three and four in a bed with our cousins. We giggled and listened to the Saturday night laughter of our young parents going out to parties. We launched pillow fights while our grandparents tried, like so many other grandparents, up and down that clattering street to shush us to sleep. There was so much going on in our grandparents' urban neighborhoods. There were candy stores, newspaper stands, and fire engines, and good humor trucks. There were games of jacks and stickball and music of all kinds tumbling out of windows. During the weekend days we spent there, we would go to church and then visit other families or run races down the street. We would climb in the grape arbors in their backyard, shaking the vines so that the heavy black grapes would fall into our mouths. For a while, off and on, I had the better of these two different worlds. I could be both a city child and a country child, but in each place, the responsibilities of being the oldest in my generation were often hard, and the punishments for wrongdoing were very stiff. I was expected to assist in many of the chores of child-rearing. I was praised for being a great help, but I didn't have much free time. I was able to take care of the mechanics of watching over and bathing and changing the clothes of infants and babies, but I had only a vague idea of who I was, or even who I wanted to be. I was terrified of discovering myself. I was afraid of life. Books were my closest friends. I read alone, sitting on a pillow at the foot of my closet, hidden under a lamp contraption I had made to give me secret light way past my bedtime. The books gave me thoughts, but I had no one to share those thoughts with. My teachers would often lend me books from the bookshelves of the tiny classroom library, and so I learned the drawing room manners of Jane Eyre and the intrepid courage of Amelia Earhart. I knew the brain was a complex labyrinth of infinite possibilities, but I had never known anyone who could explain what this phrase phrase really meant. I was becoming a scholar in a school of one. The pivotal moment of my intellectual life came just as I was about to become a teen. I was in seventh grade. We were just each supposed to do a science project in February every year, something most of us dreaded. Though most students concentrated on experiments involving electricity or chemistry, I had recently heard of a doctor who had explored the world of dreams. I decided to do my project on dreams. I wrote down the doctor's name and went to the town library. The library at that time consisted of two small but lovely rooms with floor-to-ceiling shelves interspersed throughout with tall, shining windows overlooking the town park. It was a decent library for a small town of a few thousand, and in the course of living there, I believe I read every book it carried. But this was in my beginning years, so I still had a J on my card for junior reader, meaning I had to stay in the junior reader section I was eager to start my science project, but I didn't know where to start. I went to the circulation desk to ask for help. The librarian smiled at me. I need to find a book by a man named Sigrun Freud, I told her. The librarian's smile lines deepened and gradually turned into a frown. I can't let you have such a book. That's for adults and only adults. She was drawn up to her full height on her stool. Her words stung. Everyone in the two little rooms looked up. I didn't know what to do. The afternoon light seemed to fade from the room. I turned away embarrassed and went home. That night, my mother asked me about my science project, and I told her of my experience in the library. She stood thoughtfully for a moment and then went back to making dinner. 
Before I set the table, she said she would meet me at the library the next afternoon. True to her word, she was there when I arrived. I didn't know what would happen. I think I imagined that my mother would ask the librarian what she had said, and the librarian would explain it to my mother, and my mother would explain it to me. It went quite differently. My mother asked to see the librarian and pulled me near her, so I was standing very straight and tall, looking up once again at the woman high in her wooden stool. I understand you have refused to let my daughter borrow a book by Freud, my mother said. Yes, that's true. We do not feel works of that nature are appropriate for a junior reader, the librarian answered. She does not have an adult card. I want this child to be able to read any book in this library, my mother said firmly. Any book? Any book, my mother said, including Freud. She would have to have an adult card. Then I insist that you give her one. The librarian was clearly upset, but my mother was very firm. When I had my new card, my mother took me into the stacks to find Sigmund Freud's interpretation of dreams. I left the library with a book and the new library card, which named me as an adult reader. I gained a power that day that thrills me whenever I think of it. In one swoop, my mother gave me the path to personal learning. I had always been an avid, voracious reader, but in that moment she opened wide the door of my intellect. At that moment, she showed me a world that would form me. She gave me the world of books of every kind, without censure, without hesitation. Everything I wanted to know, I could know. Deep in my deepest despairs, lost in my greatest wanderings, elated in seeking friendship, wandering and wanting answers, I have always known that I could turn to books. Even though I was roughly treated, as many children in my community were, even though I was terribly lost and lonely so much of my early life, books helped me steer my way through terrible trouble. Because of books, I began to write, and because of writing, I was able to think and know myself and know my world. This friendship with books, with knowledge, and with the process of knowing myself became a critical necessity as I grew into parenthood. I did very well in high school and entered a fine college on a scholarship. My parents were very proud, yet the night before I went away to college, my father started an angry fight with me and threw me out of the house. He was upset, I think, because I was leaving. Upset, too, probably, that he had wanted to go to college and had been forced by his father to stay home and work for the family business, which soon went bankrupt. He did not say this all to me. I think he did not know well himself very well. He lacked e easy access to what we might call his interior world. He only knew that he wanted me out of his sight that night. So I walked in the dark two miles over the country roads to a friend's house. I spent most of the night there, sad and unnerved. I called my mother to tell her where I was and to ask for a ride home. She was furious that I had shared my family's story with anyone. Aren't you ashamed of yourself, she asked me, and accused me in the same tone. I climbed into the car and sat with her sony silence all the way back to our house. In the morning, I came down to the practicalities of breakfast and packing the car. No one spoke to me. When we drove to my new school, neither one of my parents mentioned the night before. I tried to bring it up. They firmly changed the subject. We traveled, manufacturing cheerful talk, a hundred miles along the highway and into the next state. They left me with tearful tears and promises, heartful tears and promises to write. I swallowed my anguish and turned resolutely to my new life, resolving to do my best. I struggled through college. It wasn't easy for me. I fell in and out of love. I smoked a lot of marijuana. I skipped a lot of classes. Toward the end of my four years there, I met a young man, and we began a love affair that led to our living together. I knew my parents would be horrified, so I kept it a secret from them. 
After a month of pretending, I had a nervous collapse and it ended up in the hospital. The surgeons thought I had appendicitis. They operated, but my father suspected the truth. He took my boyfriend out for a drink and asked him, you're shacking up, aren't you? My boyfriend said yes, and my father became enraged. He went home and wrote me a letter disowning me. The condition for reentry in the family, I had to marry my boyfriend. My boyfriend was amenable. He wanted to do the right thing. We were married. I was permitted back into the fold. But my father did not believe I had been chastised enough. He alluded to me as a whore at a large family function. I told him he was wrong to call me that. He told me, I am your father. I can speak to you any way I like. I was stunned and miserable. Having complied with every family compunction, I was still to be shamed and shamed again. I did not know what to do. And then I discovered that I was pregnant. It began to dawn on me that my father would continue to treat me shamefully for the rest of my life in front of my family and in front of my child. I told him I was pregnant and I wrote to him telling him that I would not have him continue to treat me badly. He would have to change his way of relating with me or we could not see each other. He responded by contacting all of our family and ordering everyone to cease all contact with me. Except for my grandmothers, everyone complied. My family, my formative life, disappeared. Done. Gone. I had my baby. No one from my family came to see me. No presents, no letters of congratulations. I cried and I cried and I cried. I do not know at what point in that muggy city summer of my daughter's birth, between the diapers and the traffic and the heat, I came out of my stupor and my horror of my lonely state of affairs. I remember only waking to the resolution that I had to do something more than keep my baby clean and feel sorry for myself. I sat down and began my plan. Gradually it came to me out of a state of total dejectedness that there were obvious benefits to being so thoroughly rejected by my family. Now that there were no longer present in my life, I would have to mother this baby without their input or support. And how would I do that? I knew from my readings in college biology that every baby grew as a result of both genetics, what they had inherited from their parents, and their environment, how they were treated, and what they gained or lost from the world around them. So, if a baby was the result of all those things, what could I, as a parent, offer that would create a happy, healthy person? I had heard it said that a parent's job was to create a healthy ego in their child and then help that ego function in the world. I decided that if I could just do two things, raise a child to think well of herself and be able to integrate herself into the world, I would be doing a good job. I decided not to look to the past of my parents and all the people that had come before me, but to teach myself the present. I had begun to work on this plan without knowing it. Even while I was pregnant, I had begun already to be aware of living the pregnancy in conversation with the fetus within my womb. Many people, even comic strips, made fun of women like me who took care of what they ate, what music they listened to, what they said to the baby in their minds. We all had a good laugh about it, but many of us parents did persist in taking the gentlest care that our babies would come out strong and healthy into a world that welcomed them and show them as much as possible that it was safe to be here. Birthing classes, birthing centers, home births, better baby food, safer baby equipment and safer toys and clothing all rose out of an old idea that had become a new one. Babies need to be cared for, and when we care for them well, they are healthier, happier, and more fun. So I plan on the physical level to be a thoughtful, caring mother of Gina, my baby, while she was inside me. And when she came out of me, I realized while I didn't know much about what she needed, 
If I were alert to her, she would tell me. So, having been in conversation with a fetus, I now began to live in conversation with Gina, the baby. I discovered that my main task was to be a helpmate to the person developing before me, and thus I learned to be a good mother of an infant. Then, when she was no longer an infant, I realized I would have to learn to be a mother of a developing baby. This required me to learn some new skills as well as to maintain my old ones. And so it occurred to me that this development on my part was not never really going to stop. As Gina developed from infant to baby to toddler to child to preteen to adolescent to adult, I would also have to develop myself as a parent of a baby and then grow into being the parent of a child and from there to being the parent of a preteen, an adolescent, an adult in that order. As she grew, I would need to grow, grow too. So we both grew. We grew together. I make it sound so easy. Most of the time it was. The easiest path to good parenting is one we all know. The first law of parenting is love, and love is simply paying attention. When you pay attention, you grow to know the baby's cry, the child's fretfulness, the young person's longings, the adolescent's secretiveness, the young adult's springing into freedom, and you can hear those tones and see those needs and elevations in every stage. When you pay attention, you know the words that soothe and heal and the words that can wake up a person to life and give them a boost or offer them the sweet gift of praise. When you are paying attention to another, you notice your impact, your successes, and your faults. You forgive freely and you are often forgiven just as freely. I was married for 20 years. After Gina came my son Max, but the marriage was a challenging one and it was too challenging for me. When it ended, our children shunted back and forth between households for a while. Eventually, each of them came to live permanently with me. As a new family, the children and I had to develop new rules and new methods, and so we did. Sometimes it was tough, very tough. There were times when I was not listening or they were not listening, times when there were power struggles and times when there were disagreements so strong, I wondered if we would ever get over them. But this is where the second law of parenting comes in. That law is called respect. When you respect the feelings and life of another person, you don't shame them, you don't call them names, you don't denigrate what they care about, you don't belittle their accomplishments, and you don't hit them. If you are in conflict, you try to stay focused and calm. If you lose it, you apologize for losing it, and you seek to make amends. By amends, I mean pledging to cease the bad behavior, offering to do something to make it better, giving proof that your work is, word is good. You pledge, this is not going to happen again, and you mean it. In raising a child, you are helping a person create themselves. You want them to be people of conscience, character, and depth. They can become that so much more easily if they see the model of that in you. By being attentive, you can tell what their needs are on a physical level. More rest, more fun, more exercise, better food. You're always careful not to call attention to the attention you are giving. Merely put before them the possibility of what you are offering. If they accept it, all well and good. If they don't, Try not to make a big deal about it. We all dislike the I told you so style of self-righteousness. Teenagers are especially sensitive to this. They are trying to form their lives, so they take their independence very seriously, and they want to feel they can manage their own lives, even when this is not easy, or even when it is not working out for them. If you think there is some aspect of your teenager's life that needs special attention, eating disorders, heavy drug use, falling grades, call their attention to it ask them what they feel about it, and form a plan of action together that will help the young person change to a more positive direction.
But be aware that a teenager's changing usually means that it is time for you to change too. Be ready to examine your own life, even as you are calling your teen to examine theirs. Also be aware that in many cases, when a young person is troubled or in trouble, you will probably need more than your own family resources to help you and your teen work out the problem. Don't be too proud to ask for that help. I don't know all the answers. Who does? But I have raised my kids through the fateful journey of their teen years and into happy adulthoods. And I have helped dozens more over the years ever since then. What I know from my journeys with them, I share with you here.